If you are visiting us for the first time, we are going through a series in a book called Luke, an account of Jesus' life. And we're up to Luke chapter 3 tonight. I want to ask, I want to begin by thinking about preparing, preparing for big events. Uh, Preparing for a, a big event in life kind of reveals what sort of person you are, doesn't it? So let's take, for example, the family preparing for the big family wedding. So you've got the grandpa approach. You know, the wedding's at three in the afternoon. Grandpa's sitting at the breakfast table dressed in his suit. He's ready to go right from the get-go. You've got the mother approach. Mother gets the hair done, makeup on, perfume, but doesn't frock up because she needs to make sure everyone else gets ready. And then the father approach. Father approach is get ready by doing everything else other than getting ready. So change the oil in the car, seizing the moment to mow the lawns, getting the video, uh, the video off, the, off the video recorder onto the computer, and then the adolescent approach, living in complete naivety that there's even a wedding, until 15 minutes before, he rushes to the bathroom to find mum frocking up, can't get in that one, dad's in the other one, washing the oil off him, and he's left it all too late. John the Baptist came, and he had a ministry of preparation. He wasn't preparing people for a wedding. He was preparing people for the coming of the Lord. And here was this big question to you. It's up on the screen. He said, are you ready for the coming of the Lord? We can sum John's teaching up in sort of three big ideas that he asked the people. He said, get ready. Get ready by having a fresh start. Get ready by living transformed lives. And get ready by knowing you are on the right side of God. They were his three big ideas. And it matters so much that you can answer the question, are you ready for the coming of the Lord? Because as we'll see as we get to the end of our chapter today, Luke wants you to know that the Lord that John prepared the way for has arrived in the person of Jesus. So let's begin by thinking and asking the question, why should we listen to John the Baptist. Well, there he is just there. That's John in the window. And uh, this church is officially known as St. John the Baptist Anglican Church of Kirribilli. But that's a confusing name, so we call it Church by the Bridge. Well, why do we listen to John the Baptist? There's a lot of comeback tours happening at the moment. The Spice Girls are apparently about to announce their comeback tour. And uh, I don't know if you've ever had that experience of going to a band you've waited years and years to go and see. And you arrive there early, full of excitement. And uh, all of a sudden, the warm-up act comes on. And there's some no-name band from Wollongong. And they're just up on the stage, riffing away. And you're thinking, get get off, get, get on with it. Get the main act on. And we can often bring that approach to the ministry of John the Baptist. But listen to what Jesus had to say about John the Baptist in Luke chapter 7, verse 28. He said, Among those born of women, I tell you, there's no one greater than John the Baptist. Jesus is saying that like you'd listen to the other great prophets, like you'd listen to Moses, like you might listen to Isaiah, or the last prophet in the line of the Old Testament prophets, Malachi, well, you better pay attention to John. Jesus says John was the greatest of all that line of prophets. And John's prophecies, John's words that came from God, well, the account of them starts just like any other account of a great prophet in the Old Testament. 
with a dating formula, a, a sort of situating of his ministry. Verse 1 of our chapter, verse 1 of chapter 3, recounts a whole list of different rulers. Normally it would just say, during the reign of King Artaxerxes, this prophet spoke. But there's lots here. And Luke wants you to know that there is political instability. He also wants you to know there's religious instability. Verse 2, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, father and son, there was only meant to be one high priest, but there seems some contention over the priesthood. And then verse 2, this great moment comes. A huge moment in the history of God's people. For nearly 500 years, there'd been prophetic silence. And then what happens, verse 2? The word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. Finally, there's a recognized prophet in Israel. A word from God has come. What sort of words is it going to be? Well, verse 3 and verse 18 are like bookends of John's words. Let's see what they have to say. Verse 3, John went into the countryside around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. This word that comes from John is going to be a word that offers a fresh start, forgiveness of sins. God is going to deal with the big issue of humanity, our sin, our rebellion against God. Verse 18 sums up, And with many other words, John exhorted the people and proclaimed the good news to them. The word we have translated there as good news is the word euangelizo, from which we get the term evangelize. It's the word gospel, good news. If you could turn the word gospel into a verb, this chapter would say with many other words, John gospeled the people. John spoke the gospel message that the one who he was preparing for would also speak. It was just in line with him. So what do John's gospel words have to teach us? Here's the first of our three big ideas. John said, get ready by having a fresh start. I'm not sure what you got up to yesterday, but stinking hot day. I ended the day covered in sweat, covered in sunscreen. And you know after those hot and sticky days, you go and you have a shower and you rinse off all the sweat and the grime and it all goes down the gurgler and you step out of the shower and you say, I feel as good as new. John, John the Baptist came preaching a baptism, a washing, a ceremonial cleansing. It was a washing of repentance. Do you know what the word repentance means? It means turning around. You were going this way from God, turn around and come back to him. And what would it wash away? What would this baptism of repentance wash down the drain? Verse 3, it would wash down the drain your sins. So in three ways, this verse tells us that God wants to offer a new start. He wants to offer a wash. He wants to offer a turnaround. He wants to wipe the slate clean and remove your sins. The gospel that John came to preach was good news, the great news that God is in the business of wiping the slate clean for people who return to him. If you are looking for a fresh start with God, God says, come to me. I will wash away your sins. I will give you a new beginning. This is the great news of the gospel, and it's the great hope of God's people and has been for generations and generations. And that's why Luke decides to quote from the prophet Isaiah. 
he picks up a quote from Isaiah chapter 40. That was a part of God's word where God was holding out a hope of a fresh beginning for his people. You see, the Israelites at this time had been in exile. They'd been outside of their land because of their rebellion against God. And God had promised them a new beginning. And the new beginning would come heralded by the voice of someone calling out in the wilderness. And what would he be calling, verse 4? He'd be saying, prepare the way for the Lord. In other words, he'd be saying, get ready. God is coming to town. Then Isaiah spoke words of highway making. Highway making for victorious kings. It's essentially saying here what they've done with the M1. Where there's a mountain, cut through it. Where there's a valley, build a bridge over it. If it's curved, straighten it up. Make a straight road for a victorious king. Why? Verse 6. Because all people are about to see God's salvation. Well, historically, the nation of Israel, they did return to their land after the exile. But it was a very disappointing new beginning. It was a disappointing fresh start. And so it caused their hearts to keep looking forward, to hope for something better, to hope for a more, um, a more fulfilling, more final coming of the Lord, to hope for a, a better beginning. And Luke says that what they've hoped for for 600 years is happening now. John is that wilderness voice. And what is he calling? Verse 16, let's have a look. He's saying, verse 16, I'm baptizing you with water, but one who is more powerful than I will come, the straps of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. I don't know if you've given much thought to what it means that Jesus would come baptizing in the Holy Spirit and in fire. I actually hadn't thought much about it at all, and I've been through four years of Bible college, so that was a fresh revelation for me this week. What does it mean to be baptized in the Holy Spirit? Well, I think we can see it most clearly when we contrast it to John's baptism. So John was doing a baptism of water, an external cleansing. It could wash filth off your skin, but it couldn't reach down into your heart. It was looking forward to a work that only God could do on the inside of you, an internal washing, a cleansing of your heart, a making you new from the inside out. And this was a great, great hope of the people of Israel. They were longing and looking forward to this day where they would get new hearts from God because Ezekiel the prophet had given them a promise. Here it is on the screen. God had said, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit on you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. As a minister, I speak to lots of people who are seeking to become a better version of themselves. And so they, um, you know, they, they start meditating, uh, they start eating healthy, they increase their kale intake, they start drinking kombucha or whatever that drink is that everyone's getting into these days. Uh, they begin volunteering somewhere. They get more sleep. They do more exercise. But, you know, the problem is not what's going into our bodies. The problem's even sometimes not what we're doing with our bodies. The problem is what's coming out from inside of us. 
What did Jesus say to us? It's what comes out of the heart that makes a man unclean. The things that pour out of our hearts, our desires, they're the things that cause the problems in our lives. And they're the things we need addressing. And friends, John the Baptist has good news. If you want a new beginning, if you want a new heart, then it's coming. New hearts are on offer. And they'll come with the one I'm preparing the way for. You don't need new disciplines. You don't need new routines. You need new hearts. John the Baptist's good news is new hearts are coming in the one I'm preparing for. So get ready and have a fresh start. The second part of John's message that he spoke, that he preached, was a word that said, get ready by living transformed lives. A uh, colonial country a a number of years ago was preparing for the arrival of Her Majesty the Queen. And so they thought what they would do was they would focus on the highway between the main airport and the central city. And what they did is the government offered paint to every house along that main highway. But they only offered them enough paint for the front of their houses. John the Baptist said, shallow transformation, surface repentance is not going to cut it when the Lord comes to town. When God comes to visit, lives need to be truly transformed. Repentance needs to reach right down and touch all of who you are. Well, as a preacher, writing your sermon introduction can be one of the hardest parts of putting the sermon together because you need to have an introduction that does kind of grab the people and also gives them a, an indication of where you're going to go, a feel for what the, the sermon's going to be about. So have a look at John's introduction that he uh, has in verse 7 and let me know what you think. Verse 7. You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Certainly clear, isn't it? It's uh, It's pretty straightforward. It's obvious what he's on about. John was concerned that there was too much shallow repentance in Israel. There were people coming out just wanting a surface washing, and John said, no, you've got to let it go all the way down. You've got to let this repentance shape all of who you are. And he said, don't for a minute start saying to yourself, I don't need this kind of repentance. Don't for a second think that you can get away without this because John said, don't say, verse 8, that we have Abraham as our father. Don't say I'm a Jew. Don't say I am one of God's chosen people. Don't say I'm a pastor's kid. Don't say I grew up in church. Don't say I've always volunteered or given to the salvos. No, none of that will fly. John said, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Let your life be truly transformed by the demands of of the gospel. Well, what does the fruit of a repentant life look like? I find this fascinating because after 500 years of prophetic silence, here comes the wilderness preacher and he's got the words from God and he's going to tell the people what the repentant life looks like. And all three responses he gives to the people about the repentant life touch not just the head, not just the heart, but they go to your wallet. See, John knew that what you do with your money reflects what you value with your heart. 
we say, don't we, we say, put your money where your mouth is. Because we know that what you do with your money really reflects the deep things that you value. Well, John knew that this was the case. And so the people came to him and they said, what should we do? And they're not asking, how do we live lives to impress God? They're not saying, what can I do to clean up my act? No, these were repentant people. These, verse 7, were crowds who'd come out to be baptized by him. So they're asking John, John, what does the repentant life look like? To the crowds, John says, the repentant life looks like radical generosity. He says to the crowds, the haves, anyone who has two shirts should share with the have-nots, the one not having any. The haves, those who have food, should do the same to the have-nots, those who are hungry. Friends, radical repentance means radical new relationships. We live no longer for ourselves, but we live for the well-being and the good of others. You have new relationships with everyone in this building. And so you could think this week as you prepare yourself to meet the Lord, how could I use whatever God has made me rich in to meet the needs of those who are in need this week? Perhaps you're rich in time. Perhaps you're rich in cooking skills. Perhaps you're rich financially. Perhaps you're rich just in presence, the gift of presence. How could you use your richness this week to give to someone in need to show that repentance has touched down in your heart? What should we do? Asked the tax collectors as they came to John. Remember that these people are kind of like banking executives who've been convicted in the Royal Banking Commission, turning up here at church tonight saying, Church by the bridge, what should we do? What does the repentant life look like? Well, John says to these tax collectors, the repentant life looks like transformed business relations. Repentance has to touch down in your working week, friends. If your Sunday doesn't affect your Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, right through to Saturday, then you are just living a surface repentant life. No, John says, let repentance touch it all. Let it impact the way you conduct yourself at work. Let it impact your business dealings. Let it impact the way you deal with the Australian Taxation Office. And while we're talking tax, let's ask that question. Are your dealings with the Taxation Office full of honesty and full of integrity? You know, you can fool the ATO, but you can't fool the all-seeing eyes of God. I'm aware that there are some significant men in Anglican churches on the North Shore of Sydney who are masters in tax evasion, who can redirect your income to countries around the world, have you filling in meeting minutes from European countries so that you can avoid rendering to Caesar what is Caesar's? John says, beware. If repentance isn't transforming your business life, beware. The axe is at the root of the trees and every tree not producing good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. Friends, make sure repentance affects your working week. Even the soldiers came to John and they asked, well, what should we do? John says that to these soldiers, the repentant life looks like transformed relationships with those you work with. These were Jewish militia, people who were 
powerful, influential, scary, intimidating. And they were using that not to serve the people they were to protect, but to intimidate them, to bully them, to extort them and get money from them. Why do we misuse our power or our position or our authority in our workplaces? We do it because we fail to trust God. We fail to trust God to meet our needs. We fail to trust him to give us the career path we desire. And John picked that up when he responded to these soldiers, when he said to them in the end of verse 14, you must just be content with your pay. God knows your needs and God will meet them. There's no room for skin-deep repentance. The Lord is coming. And those who want to take hold of the fresh start God's offered must also let the radical demands of repentance shape every part of their life. I used to freak out thinking about what it would look like to live a life for God. I used to think that if you wanted to live a genuine life for God, you'd have to escape and go to some little Christian bubble where you could live for God safely in that place. Well, John says, no, no, no. The repentant life looks like living in the world, but just living in it differently. So John says, get ready by living a transformed life. Thirdly, John says, get ready by knowing where you stand with God. Verse 17 is a surprisingly good news verse of, this, of John's preaching. Let me read it to us. Verse 17. The coming one, his winnowing fork, is in his hand to clear his threshing floor. A threshing floor was the place where wheat was sorted out from the husks around it and uh, the wheat was then gathered into the barns. Here John is using the, the word wheat as a metaphor for the repentant. He says the wheat will be gathered into the coming one's barns, but the chaff, a metaphor for the unrepentant, well, the chaff, what does he say will happen to them? He will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Then Luke notes, and with many other words, John exhorted the people and proclaimed the good news to them. And so I ask the question, is Luke saying that, apart from this little hellfire and brimstone moment that John had, all the other words were quite good? That was the good news? Or is he saying that this hard-to-hear message from John is John's good news, is the gospel news? And so often in the history of Israel, God's people, the good news, God's saving purposes, have come about not by them being saved out of judgment, not by judgment being withdrawn, but actually by going through judgment. John said, the coming one will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. When he spoke of fire, it was in contrast to his water baptism. You would go under the water and emerge out of it. And the one who baptizes in fire would bring you through the fire and safely into his barn. God has warned that there will come a day when he will judge the world with justice and he will do it with fire. And he says there is only one way to be safe on that day and that is by sheltering in this coming one, by being the wheat that's been brought into his barn. Hope will emerge through judgment. On July 28th, of, uh, sorry, on September 28 of just this year in Palu, Indonesia, 300,000 people living in that region received a text message. Uh, not everyone got the message, but the message read, warning tsunami alert. Some people heeded the warning. They fled to safer ground. 
Some people didn't receive the message at all. And sadly, some people got the message and were dubious, doubtful that it was genuine. 2,000 people lost their lives that day. John the Baptist says, Warning, the wrath of God is coming. Make sure you're on the right side of God when it comes. Make sure you're on the right side of the coming Lord. John knew that not everyone was going to like that message. Not everyone's going to heed the warning, and Herod the Tetrarch, the ruler of that region, was one of them. Herod didn't like to be told that he needed a fresh start. He didn't want to know that he needed to repent and find forgiveness. Herod didn't want to amend his lives to the radical demands of repentance. He didn't want to change his marriage to his brother's wife. Herod didn't want to hear that he was subject to God's wrath. And so he tried to shut God's prophet up by locking God's prophet up. But you can't shut up a prophet of God, can you? Because he's still speaking, isn't he? He's speaking to you tonight. And he's speaking this word that you need to pay attention. You must listen to him. And Luke wants you to know that it's so important that you listen to what John has to say because the Lord that he prepared the way for, he's arrived. He's here and he's here in the person of Jesus. Luke chapter 3 concludes by letting us know in three ways that the Lord that John was preparing for, preparing the people to meet, is Jesus. Luke wants us to know that Jesus is the one who brings the hope of new beginnings. Jesus is the one who offers the fresh start. So Rob's pretty thankful, I imagine, that we didn't ask him to read this big genealogy of names. But the very end of it, verse 38, Luke wants to point out that there is a new beginning. He retraces Jesus all the way back to being the son of Adam, the son of God. And he says where Adam and every subsequent person after him failed, there is a new Adam, a new son of God. And he offers a new beginning. Jesus is the one who offers that new fresh start. Luke wants you to know that Jesus is the Lord you need to be prepared to meet. When he was baptized, there was a voice that came from heaven. It was God the Father. And he said these words in verse 22. He said, You are my son, whom I love. With you, I'm well pleased. We think with our modern sensitivities, isn't that nice to hear a father talk about his son like that in public? You don't hear that that often these days, do you? Isn't that lovely? But if you were an Israelite on the banks of the Jordan, alarm bells are going off. You're thinking Psalm 2. Psalm 2 that spoke of God's Messiah, the king who would come and judge the nations. And God said to him on the screen, You are my son. Today I've become your father. When God the Father speaks of this pleasing one, you're thinking Isaiah 42, the servant that God would send, the pleasing servant who would come and would bring about the redemption of Israel by the suffering of himself. You're thinking, our Messiah's here. Here is the Messiah. We must listen to him. Thirdly, Luke wants you to know that Jesus is the Lord you need to stand on the right side of. When he was baptized, verse 22 recounts that the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form. 
Here is your Holy Spirit baptizer. Here's the one who will baptize in the Spirit and fire. He's arrived. He is the Lord. He is the one you need to make sure that you stand on the right side of. His first coming was in meekness. His second coming will be in majesty. Luke wants you to know that the Lord John was preparing people to meet is the person, Jesus. Are you ready to meet him? Let me conclude by telling you of three friends who this year have got themselves ready to meet the Lord. Andrew's a friend of mine. I met him at the gym. And this year, he's decided to take hold of a fresh start with God. For over a decade, Andrew's lived as a very functional alcoholic. But this year, he decided to repent, to turn back to God. And he's taken hold of a fresh start. He said no more to that destructive lifestyle. No more to the hurting the people I love. Andrew has taken hold of a fresh start that God offers him. And the question for you is, have you taken God's fresh start? Reza. Reza's become a Christian through our Alpha, our alpha courses that we run. This year... Uh, as, as Reza did Alpha, he's also been in the process of conducting some very difficult legal processes with a friend who has, uh, who has wronged him. Well, uh, Reza's realized that the demands of repentance need to touch down in his working week. And so on the very morning he was driving to work, ready to begin legal proceedings against his friend, he was listening to the words of Jesus in his car. And Jesus said the words... If God has forgiven you so great a debt, you also must forgive your debtors. And Reza picked up the phone. He called the friend and extended forgiveness to him. He also cancelled an enormous debt that this friend owed him. He said he's never felt such great peace in his heart. God has set him free from that bitterness towards this man. The question is, has radical repentance touched down in your working week? Lastly, Ali. Ali's become a Christian through our everyday English ministry here at church. Uh, on, one, on Monday night, I asked Ali the question, Ali, are you afraid of what will happen after you die? English is not Ali's strong suit, but he said in broken English, No, I am not afraid to die. Because Jesus has made everything okay. Do you have Ali's confidence? Do you have Ali's confidence in the face of death and in the face of God's coming judgment? Friends, John the Baptist said, Get ready. Have a fresh start. Live a transformed life. Know that you're standing on the right side of God. He prepared the way for the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus offers you that new beginning. Jesus demands your life be transformed and will give you the grace to do so. And Jesus promises to keep you safe in light of the coming judgment of God. Are you ready to meet the Lord? Let's pray we'd be a people who are ready.